This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. First Draft is now in its seventh year and recently lost its funding. So I'm turning to you, my listeners, and asking for your support to keep this podcast going. So far, there have been 242 authors. Today makes 243 featured on First Draft, talking about their work and their craft. I don't know of many other podcasts that go so in-depth with a writer about what they are creating, the themes and concerns of their work, and the behind the scenes of how they make it. It's an absolute passion and pleasure for me to deliver this content to you every Monday, without fail, for the last six-plus years. It takes time and money to produce this podcast, to purchase the software, host the audio, and create the show. At patreon.com slash writers, you can provide much-needed support for the show that makes a difference in keeping it on the air. This is the third show where I've requested support, and it's not my favorite thing to do, but I also believe in all my heart that having these conversations is not just an insightful look into our literary landscape, but they're acts of empathy every time we dive into a writer's work, because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is what it means to be alive here and now in this world we all share. I believe dialogue is what we so often lack in many realms of our society, and I hope in some way this podcast is contributing to the conversation in America. So consider if you subscribe, you are getting over three hours a month of deep conversation about craft and literature and what it means to reflect our human experience on the page. Please take a stake in these conversations by supporting their creations. There are various levels of support, and each one comes with extras, like cuts that didn't make it into the show, writing tips, and even books. And you can always reach me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. So take a minute to go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters, and please contribute to what we are creating together. I couldn't do it without you. And also, please rate the show on iTunes and tell at least one friend to subscribe. Thank you so much. Today, we have a special first. Last week, Aspen Words, a literary nonprofit in Aspen that offers author readings and classes and vital literary education around the Aspen area and works to inspire readers and writers and to connect people through stories, held its Summer Words Workshop, where students come for nearly a week and take classes with writers and participate in craft talks. Poet Laureate of Brooklyn, Tina Chang, taught a poetry workshop and sat down with me in front of a live audience to record this episode of First Draft. Chang's most recent collection is called Hybrida, and her other collections are titled Of Gods and Strangers and Half-Lit Houses. She teaches poetry at Sarah Lawrence College, and you can also read a Tina Chang poem on the New York City subway as part of the Poetry in Motion program. Her collection, Hybrida, explores the complexities of raising a mixed-race child in today's political and social American landscape. She looks at issues of police violence, disappeared children, race relations, and her own ancestry. We recorded this interview on June 18, 2019 at Aspen Summer Words. You can find out more about that program at aspenwords.org. And here we are, live.
This is my first live taping of a podcast. So Tina, thank you. Thank We're doing you. like a live birth. It's like the birthing of a new new day in this podcast. So we'll see how it goes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What what kind of things were nagging at you when you began writing this poetry? It's it's obvious through the poems that the current state of the country is reflected in here. But what kind of rose to the surface for you that you wanted to get on the page? Well, during this time that I was writing this book, I gave birth to a son. I gave birth to a son when I was a little bit older. I was 40 years old. And at the same time, I was working on a book. And I was working on a book that I thought was about fairy tales, only because that was what I was doing with most of my time. I was mostly just reading fairy tales, reading children's books to my son. So I started reinventing these fairy tales. And then as time went on, I thought it was just plain boring. I don't know if I was doing anything else, but regurgitating a lot of fairy tales. So uh, I put my book aside for a little while. And I think that those kinds of open spaces are actually very healthy for the book. And then at that time in the media and the news, uh, what I kept noticing over and over again, which is also not a new thing, is that um, young black boys were dying. And this is not a new thing. But with the birth of my son and looking at him, and he is also black himself. And I thought, you know, there's something about what I'm creating right now that doesn't feel true to me. You know, for me to just talk about fairy tales right now, during the state of our nation and during the time of his growth, there was a transition with our election. Um, It just, um, the book started to just change on its own. And I think through the reflection of these young boys' lives, which were being lost day after day, and also reflecting upon my son, who was growing up to be, uh, well, a young boy of color living in the world, I was thinking, how am I going to raise him to be safe. And I didn't really have answers to that. So that's what was sort of nagging at me. If I could be the one, if all of us as parents could be the one to be in full control of our child's safety, how beautiful that would be. But it was not the case. So during the time that I was raising him and reading these stories, I started reinventing these fairy tales in a way that really surprised me. Uh, Because in the fairy tales, if you've ever read Grimm's fairy tales, Grimm's fairy tales are very, very grim. (laughs) I have no idea why, I have no idea why our parents have ever read these books to us, which are filled with, you know, murders and possible killings and axes and hunters. So there's the invention of the hunter and the witch and foxes. And there's always, always these figures that are almost kind of predatory in these stories and as as an adult processing these stories I was thinking like what is the use of presenting this character of the hunter and the witch like what exactly does it teach young children well maybe it could be well if you make a wrong move if you do something wrong perhaps something is out there maybe you should be careful I don't know I really don't know like I was trying to process that whole message but then I was trying to process well if I was making a modern day uh, fairy tale who is the modern day hunter And then I kind of went back to the relationship um, between uh, Michael Brown, uh, between Eric Garner and the the police officers and how and kind of going through every single detail of how it is that they passed away, how it is that they died and what could have happened to prevent it. And then at the same time, of course, I was I was raising my son and trying to kind of negotiate the relationship of the mind, of the imagination, and then what was actually happening before me. Because what was actually happening before me is that I was making him breakfast. He was going off to school. He was still safe. 
But in my imagination, there was kind of this fury of, of what could possibly ever happen to him. And so those were the things that were really pushing at me. But some of the things that we've gotten to at um, Aspen Summer Words, the class that we're teaching here, and we had such a beautiful class today, which I think was ultimately filled with a lot of understanding. But a lot of the things that we also touched upon in class were things that I was really actively thinking about in writing this book was uh, uh, themes of, um, I mean, the topic of appropriation. And so that was really needling me a lot. I wanted to try to write from the state of being a mother without appropriating the life of the, this little boy. And we could say, what is appropriation? You know, appropriation is when we talk of or speak of as an authority figure about somebody else's life in which we know nothing about really, and then we profit from it. So I was very, very, first of all, there's no profit in poetry. We could say that much. There's like no profit for anybody who's like ever dreaming of a profit. There's no, no such thing. So, okay, so I took that out of the picture. There's no profit. But then the profit could also come in the state of like a certain amount of attention. So then I kind of pulled away too. I said, well, I don't really need or want uh, to profit in terms of attention for the lives of these young men and young boys whose mothers will always long for them and who always want them back. I don't want to do that. So for a long time, I, I really fought with myself about this material. Um, so I did. I just didn't write. So all the it's this, this, the imagination is very strange because the imagine my imagination kept creating these poems, and it's almost like I was willing my hand to not write it. I was like, don't pick up the pen, don't write it. It's not your story. But as I was raising him and as he had questions and as he had questions about his world, who he was, the color of his skin, the color of my skin, and as I tried very hard to explain the essence of our relationship, I thought to myself, well, as a mother, I do have a right to be able to tell something of the story. So it, even in the book, I say, um, how do I talk about my son's existence without appropriating his existence? I return to the language of mothers. So I was still his mother. I still had a mother language and that mother language is often a language that I think is I also stress in the book that's oftentimes ignored or obliterated or to, we're told to not really have to talk about it that we're okay just being moms deal with it you know there are all these New York Times articles now about what it means to be like a great dad and how we give we give dads like all of these allowances like you're out with a baby Bjorn you're fine you know you're doing great and the mothers are making all the appointments and doing all the work and yet there is no official language um, surrounding the stresses and the work and the um, fears it is that they have. So I think in the book, that was what was encouraging me is I wanted to create a v validity of mother language. So how do you take those feelings and then put it into poems, different forms of poems, different voices of poems, and go from kind of so much to something that's pretty compressed. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that's why the book is called Hybrida, because Hybrida means the combination of many things. And I think that you're, you're right to note that there was so much swirling in my imagination and so many emotions that I felt that I was trying to suppress and so many emotions that were also rising to the surface with very furious energy. So the only thing that I could do to try to gather all of that within a book was move toward hybrid form. So 
in my class here, we've been talking about some some forms and how forms could really push us forward in poetry. So um, I started relying on ancient Japanese forms. There's a form called the zuhitsu. So the zuhitsu is a is an ancient Japanese female form that's derived from something called the pillow book. The ancient Japanese courtesans used to sl sleep with um, uh, books under their pillows and uh, they would wake and they would take the book from underneath their pillow and start writing what was ever on their mind, a kind of free association of what was happening. And uh, Zuhisu translates into running brush, the actual running of the brush, allowing the brush to run, which we've also been talking about in class as like a method, just keep your hand moving across the page. So that was one of my methods first, like keep my hand moving across the page. And then also allowing kind of that first waking up feeling, that fragmentary nature of all the things that you just noticed. I was over here and I was over here and I was over here. Here, all of those things can be compressed in one poetic form called zu the zuhitsu. Also, other forms that I was practicing were ekphrastic poems, where I, I sometimes didn't even know what it is that I wanted to say. So I utilized images, I utilized paintings, I contacted, um, I contacted certain artists who I was interested in, like Kahinde Wiley and Kara Walker, and I tried to explain who is this crazy woman coming at them, you know, saying like, I'm an I'm an Asian woman, and I feel I'm trying to tell this story. And the story is somehow being told through some of your paintings. Do you believe me? Do you want to work with me? Is it okay if I utilize your work? Do you think it's a worthy story? And I think that just all of these visual artists wanting to work with me and saying, yes, I really do believe in your story. Yes, I think you have something valid to say. That was another kind of form that kind of pushed me forward. So time and time again, it was poetic forms, whether it be the Zuhitsu or the ekphrastic poem, or there's another um, ancient form, a Persian form, called the puzzle that pushed me forward too so I almost it almost gave me like the proper vessels to be able to kind of place all of my work yeah it's interesting that you kind of went to the form first to then contain it's like you were lassoing all these thoughts into a certain kind of corral yeah so so it could work for you one thing I noticed in your work and and you're talking about appropriation is that here here's a line some lines from your first poem it's called he pronoun and you wrote and some claim he is journalism media around me so much light filtered through so much video of him and and you're introducing us to the concept of the sun but I feel like you're also talking about the black man in America and the and the racism and the violence and how do you walk the line between what you're talking about like your intimate feelings and the universal yeah, I mean, I think some of the things that I'm also talking about in the lines that you just read is not just the black male body, but I was also talking about media perceptions, too. And I felt like, wow, you know, all of these what what the journalists were choosing as like picking and choosing and basically curating the story wasn't always the true story because the true story that the, the story that they were trying to curate was sort of like the black man is criminal and I and I really felt very resistant to that so when I'm saying a line like that like so much media of him I'm like wow there's so much media of young black men being presented to me and here I am with my boy I'm like nursing him I'm taking him to, out to the park these these um, images were just always compressed together. And to be honest with you, I didn't know if my story was universal. You know, I really had to be honest with you. Like, I didn't, I didn't know if my story was universal at all. And I think that's the way that all writers sort of move through the world. Like, I'm going to write my story. 
I have no idea if anybody else is going to listen to it, but I'm going to put myself out there um, because I kind of felt, especially also as a mixed race family, I didn't know, I didn't know if my story was going to be palatable to anybody. So I was almost kind of writing in the dark where I thought, hey, you know, I, I want to say something. I want to say something about boys. I want to say something about raising boys in America. And I hope that it reflects with everything that we're trying to express right now about where we are standing right now in our American culture. This, we, we were talking about it, this idea of walls. Why are we building walls? Why we're embedded in fear? Why do we then feel um, okay when we're separating ourselves between one and another? And I think those were the sort of universal thoughts that I was thinking about. You know, that what I'm talking about, even in these first few lines, are things that hopefully everybody should be thinking about. You know, it, it was all the things that we were talking about today in our class, is if we're not talking about this as black people, as white people, as Asian Americans, what are we doing? You know, so I think that I was hoping, like, as I was writing through this kind of darkness, not really knowing, like, how I was going to come out on the other side, I was really kind of just writing in a fury, hoping, okay, maybe one person will read it. I'm hoping, like, one person maybe will connect with it. And that's not actually what happened at all, because with the publication of this book and bringing it to many different communities, I realized that there were actually a lot of mixed race communities who didn't ever really feel like they had a, a, a language, like an official language, and it's still a language that's being developed. Because if we even think about the case of the Lovings, and, and the case of the Lovings, you know, it's, it, I mean, this happened in the 1950s, where just the idea of being able to marry someone of another race, it was, it was deemed appropriate and okay and legal, you know, in the 1950s. So if you can think about our language for this in the United States, not around the world, in the United States is relatively new, you know, because if you're, if you're moving toward like Haitian culture, I mean, that has been mixed race for, for so long. But here in the U.S., we're still trying to find our footing of how to engage in it, even today, like as a demonstration in our class, like how do we engage as a white community, a black community, a Asian American community, how do we talk about race? There are those who say, well, maybe the best thing to do is like keep silent. Maybe the best thing to do is listen. And then there are others like, well, you know, I mean, I think the case that was brought up today was like, you know, a, a person who is white writing in the voice of a black male. And I think it was very moving for all of us to talk about, well, that maybe not that, that might not be the right perspective. Like maybe that you should choose a different perspective and why. And I think that all of us just talking about the why, somewhat a white person should not be talking, speaking from the voice in, in, like a, in like a poem or a fictional story, why they shouldn't be speaking in the voice of a black man. That conversation was important to have in our class. But what it made me realize is that that kind of conversation needs to be happening everywhere. And what is it about us as a human race that we're not having those conversations more often? You know, is it that we don't want to offend? Is it that um, we feel like we're stepping over certain boundaries that we shouldn't be stepping on? Is it that we feel that we will move from friendship from friendship to being enemies because we express these things? So all of these were sort of whirling around my mind. So it's kind of compressed just in those first in those few lines that you're talking about. And um, I guess my hope it was going to be universal, but I wasn't banking on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that you're one of the things that this collection straddles that's really amazing is is kind of the darkness of 
of what we're facing right now as a society and some of that violence and that hate, but also the, like almost the impossibility of the fact that we're here, that all the conditions that happen to make us who we are today is is so miraculous. And, and I got that really out of your poem, Revolutionary Kiss, which is a poem where you're kind of digging into the you and your partner's ancestry that you you envision like one person born in Haiti and one person born over in, in China eventually meeting in America and marrying and, and having a baby and the DNA and the trauma and the history and the miracle of that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Revolutionary Kiss was a result of just somebody giving me an assignment. Um, the, the poet Brian Turner uh, had an anthology called The Kiss. And it was a beautiful idea for an anthology. He said, wow, there's so much hatred in the world right now. There's so much speech around hatred, hate speech. He's like, I'd like to make an anthology that talks about love and the way I'm going to center it and the way that I'm going to anchor it is to talk about the kiss. And so he said, uh, you know, do you think that you can write about a kiss? I said, oh, no, I can't. I can't. No, I can't do that. And he said, why not? I said, because it would just wind up being really sentimental. And, uh, you know, so if you think about the kiss for a second, just think about it. Like there are so many different kinds of kisses. There's like the first kiss in his case he he wrote this very touching story about a goodbye kiss because his wife was ill and he was kissing her for the very last time there is the kiss after there's the makeup kiss <laughs> you know after <laughs> after you had a few big, big argument with someone you're having a makeup kiss so I said oh my gosh I read all these beautiful stories um, that I didn't know how I was gonna come up with something that felt original so then I thought and thought for I refused him I said okay I don't know maybe maybe not so I went home and I was like what is the most important kiss of my life and I was like okay the most important kiss of my life is kissing my son you know m- you know meeting him for the very first time and, you know, giving birth to him and like dreaming and dreaming and dreaming about him for so long and um, thinking that perhaps I wouldn't be offered the gift of having a a child and then uh, meeting him. And so the revolutionary kiss um, was about the journey of my husband's ancestry in Haiti and how and and so the Haitian revolution is like the revolution that sets like the course of for discussion of all revolutions because there was a revolution. The Haitian people are very, very proud because they... um, they fought for 18 years for for their freedom, like a physical fight. You know, they decided if we were going to free ourselves from slavery, it, we're not going to free ourselves from slavery by saying we want our freedom, just just to just say the words and through discussion. That's not going to happen. We're going to free ourselves from a physical physical throw it down fight for and it happened for 18 years where they finally won their freedom. So I thought about his history and I thought about the Taiwanese history and what what it took my mother to get from Taiwan to China and then from China to America and then like you said for my husband and I to like somehow strangely meet in somewhere in the middle of nowhere and then for everything to be decided that you know somehow I was going to be healthy enough to have a child and then he arrived so I thought like the miracle of all of us kind of getting here to this place to even like sit here right now it's it's a it's a miracle it's a it's a it's a happening to be able to uh you know be blessed with something like that so I think I was just trying to chart the course of how difficult it is for us to get here and how miraculous it is can you talk a little bit about your craft in terms of responding 
to the news. So you're, a lot of these stories about your life, and then you have you know it, stories about Michael Brown, stories about a YouTube video, stories about a disappearance of a young Orthodox boy that ended up dead in, in New York. So how does that fit into your process? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that as I was writing about my young son, I realized that these aren't just our stories, that our stories are shared with others and other and other mothers and other family members who who care so deeply about um, their children. And then when we have our children, we, we, we let them go. We let them go in the world. And that's the process. I oftentimes tell my son, you know, I'm really just here for one reason and one reason only. And that's to teach you how to live in this world without me. And he said, Oh, mom, that's so sad. You know, why are you ta- telling such a such a sad story? But I think that, you know, in, in terms of going back to the fairy tale again, I was very invested in like, what is the narrative of children? Like, what is the narrative moving from a place of vulnerability to a place of safety? And I and I was really invested in kind of trying to walk through and wade through that very difficult terrain uh, between um, fear and safety. And uh, uh, the things that were just honestly going through my mind was just a kind constant like viral feeds. My husband was incredibly invested in watching all these videos, which would really be really difficult to watch. And I would just sort of pass, he would be watching these videos of, of somebody else getting arrested or somebody else, or another black man who was hurt. And I would sort of pass him by as he was sort of watching it. And the, he would always have it on the kitchen table, the laptop. And I said, why do you keep doing that? And he said, doing what? I said, why do you keep watching these um, videos of all of these, uh, of everyone being hurt? And he said, we have to. He's like, I think that we have to watch these videos and be very keenly aware of our environment and be incredibly aware of all the hurt that's out there because we can't shut ourselves down at any point. So that was a big lesson for me. So a lot of these videos would kind of loop through my imagination somehow, like through sort of watching it out of the corner of my eye when he was watching it. And a lot of times it was voluntary where I was doing that job too, that I wanted to be not shut down, but I wanted to be incredibly aware in the same ways that he was aware. I walk in this world side by side with him and I wanted to be completely tuned in. So there are these stories in um, the book and one is of uh, Kamitra Barber. Kamitra Barber was um, driving in Forney, Texas and she was with her four four young children and they were all under the age of 10. And uh, her car was stopped and she was asked to get out of the car and she didn't know why. She kept asking the police, why are you, why are you doing this to me? Why am I getting out of the car? And they wouldn't really tell her why. They said, you know, they just asked her to just kind of please listen to her instructions. And then she said, I have children in the car and you are scaring them. You, the children were crying. And then the one boy gets out um, with his arms up, with his arms raised. And it's just this one clip that I often show as something that I was thinking about that looped in my imagination over and over again, because at the time, the little boy that got out of the car with his arms raised was six years old. And I'm thinking, why on earth is a boy who's six years old getting out of a car uh, uh, to to surrender himself to the cops and that he knew what to do? That was the saddest thing to, to me, is that he actually knew instinctively what to do because his mother probably already told him in the past. And so the these little things that that were not little at all, but it was kind of almost small to the police because the police had just said, well, um, we're sorry. You know, we're, the, there was an apology and it was a sincere sorry. We're very sorry that we stopped you. By the way, they were looking for four men in a tan car and she was a woman and four children in, uh, in a burgundy car. 
so um, the whole idea of just like even the narrative of what it is that they were looking for, who they were looking for was so incredibly far off that I thought, what do we do with these stories in our imagination? Oftentimes I feel like when I talk to people, like, that was so sad. And I was thinking, you know, I can't really live in that. Like, I can't really live in that story. Like, that's so sad. And then go about my day buying groceries and, you know, tending to, tending to, you know, going to my doctor's appointment or going to my yoga appointment. I can't do that. So the way I think that as writers, we process this information, I actually embedded those videos and, and links to the videos, like, within the work itself. It's so small, you will read the work and it, you could almost not see it. But if you read very carefully, you'll see it at the very, very bottom of the page um, as if to say, if you're really, really, really reading carefully enough, if you really, really want to know the story of the history of our country, it's in the, it's in the little details. You're really going to have to look carefully. One of the things in one of your poems, you talked about your fear as a child, or I'm assuming that that, that it was you. It was a poem where um, a child is coming home with a key for the first time and mm-hmm grasping time and it was it was one of the first times where I felt like I saw the narrator of most of these poems uh, apart from being a mother Mm -hmm. yeah that was me (laughs) that was me there was one poem in in the book um, that is called uh, I think it's called the long shadow where I talked about being alone for the first time can you remember those times in your life where your parents finally gave you that freedom and that opportunity to be independent and alone and all of us get this at different ages depending on how protective your parents were or maybe depending on where you lived maybe you lived in a very very safe environment where your parents or your guardians were very trusting of everybody around you I was like a New York City kid you know like street New York City kid and my mom was a single mom And um, I remember her giving me a key for the first time when I was eight. And she said, I think you could make it home by yourself. She said, I think, um, I think that you can do this. So she, she made me a key. I, I was very nervous. I remember being very nervous because I was eight. It was just like, it was the longest, like five blocks of my life. I walked the five blocks to my home and in the piece, in the book, I had a really hard time um, opening the lock of the door. And at the time I really, really had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so, I mean, it was just like, a, I don't, it wasn't like the way it's presented in the book. It's not a comedy at all because I was, so embarrassed because you know my stockings were wet like I I went into the house feeling so ashamed that my first opportunity to be an independent person I just ruined it you know and so I took off the stockings and I put them way down deep in in the in the trash can underneath all these coffee cups and underneath all the trash because I didn't want my mother to know that I had failed in this first opportunity that she gave me to be on my own and be free. I wanted her to think that I was successful at it. And this is a child's imagination, right? Because if I actually wound up telling my mom, oh gosh, this all of this happened, she would have forgiven me or she wouldn't have even thought it was a big deal at all. But in the mind of the child, everything is so magnified. These little, little things of like, oh, I was expected to do this, but it went all wrong. So that was in my mind, too, like the kind of fears that I had when I was growing up. So it was interesting. I I got to meet you yesterday for the first time. And your book has so many heavy and and dark topics. And you, I think that your energy is is quite light. And I'm just wondering a little bit about that, like how you how you manage 
to hold all this at once. Mm. I think I'm quite a dark person, actually. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think what we present to the outside world is just something. I think I was always just a very seemingly like a very light person, and then people would read my work and go, "Whoa! All of your books, all of my books are incredibly heavy. I'm dealing with very heavy subjects." I think that like life is lightness, and it is that darkness and that heaviness of what it is that we deem to be important. If it if it wasn't important to us, we wouldn't be dealing with it with so much, you know, sort of weight, you know, but I had to also kind of create situations where, you know, I wasn't, I, I had to be able to just walk, wake up and walk through the world. But I also have to say like this idea too, of like having to be happy all the time. It's a little bit of a farce. Like I, I, I won't say the poet because it's actually a very important poet, but he is a, is a white person who wrote, I, I think tried to write a very effective poem about the last lynching in America. The last lynching in America happened in 1981. And so he had written this poem where it, it was, he was just contemplating the street and he was contemplating the tree from which this person was hung. And I thought it was a very effective poem. And he said, you know, he asked the question, he's like, I am white. How should I be able to embark on this conversation about the deep feelings that I have uh, about the total atrocity of what what our race race relations look like in this country and how I feel that it hasn't improved by very much. He's like, how do I embark on that experience? So I thought he was doing a really great job of those questions in the conversations. And then he ended with, oh, and then I'm now I'm going to read a happy poem. And that's when he kind of, you know, not lost me, but I felt... I felt a little bit let down because I thought, you know, why can't we contemplate the life of this person? Why can't we co contemplate the state of America in which this person has been lynched? Why can't we rest in that for a little while and be with that? Why do I, it's, why does it have to be a feel good experience where you now read me a happy poem? Why do I need that? I don't need that. I, I wonder if the audience felt like they needed it, but I think just as a natural sort of like the darkness and the light, he wanted to sort of bring us and the reading in a happy place and I don't need that you know and I, I don't know how like my persona this has just always been you know who I am and but I, I I think that the real me is is pretty you know gnarly yeah <laughs> it's pretty gnarly I think about a lot of really you know very intricate things as I think most of us do as I'm starting to learn in the in the class that I'm teaching here um, at Aspen Summer Words that you know we're all on the surface it seems like we all pretty much have it together we have to we have to get dressed in the morning we have to like put everything in our bag we have to head out and do the shopping and get all the stuff done but really deep down inside we all have incredibly intricate stories and a lot of trauma and a lot of things that we're trying to get over and this is what I'm realizing this week the more I sit with my class the more I'm like whoa there are some not only heavy stories but there is a community too that really also wants to um, listen and not necessarily help navigate we can't always be helpful we want to be helpful but sometimes I thought the spirit of today is that you know we were very active listeners we were listening to each other's stories and I felt like that was like a good kind of progress that I felt like we needed in in, in our space together as a class well, let's talk about one of your poems, Fury, because that is one that I think goes through a lot of emotions uh -huh. and it kind of starts off with, you know, you're talking about your, your son and um, what you see on television and the, the sort of damage that you see in the world and you end in this 
other place. And can you just talk a little bit about the poem and maybe share a little bit about what it's about? Okay. Do you want me to read aspects of the poem or just talk about it? I think you should roll with your gut. Okay. Um, I'll just read the first stanza. Okay. So that way we know what we're talking about. And you should know that this was written after um, the Michael Brown and then the Eric Garner verdicts, which were, I remember, very, very close to each other. So I was feeling this, fury. My son rubs his skin and names it brown, his expression gleeful as I wipe a damp cloth over his face this morning. Last night, there were reports that panthers were charging through the streets. I watch from my seat in front of the television, a safe vista. I see the savannah. Sometimes, though, my son wakes to a kind of nightmare. He envisions words on the wall and cannot shake them. He tries to scratch them away or runs out of the room, but the words follow him. None of it makes any sense, but it's the ghost of his fear that I fear. And then I'll just skip down to the very bottom of that page. I know the world will find him and tell him the history of his skin. Harm will come searching for him and pour into him its scorching mercury, its nails, its bitter breath against his boyhood skin, still smelling of milk and wonder. So um, that's not the end of the poem because it goes through a whole trajectory basically of me being completely pissed off and, you know, why was I, why was I angry? Why was I furious? I mean, I think, I think especially in Eric Garner's case, I felt like we had on video like the moment that he died and how he died. And I felt like that was not proof enough to find some form of redemption, some sort of what we deem to be justice in the world. So, so then I sort of asked myself, you know, where is the justice? How does the justice occur? Why can't we get to a place of truth and justice right now? Why? Like, what is preventing it? We could all come up, if I asked each one of you, everybody would come up with a different reason as to why justice wasn't served in, in these two cases, but especially in the last one where there was full-on video of what was happening in the last moments of Eric Garner's life. I felt nothing but fury. I mean, I could not even just, I could not get up in the morning. I could not walk. I was just holding my son right next to me. Just He's like, mom, you're holding me too tight. And I'm like, I, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. So then, of course, as writers, as artists, we go to the thing that is calling to us. And, and again, I sort of prevented myself from writing, prevented myself from writing. And then I started writing this poem and then wasn't really sure where it ended because I wanted to stay in the place of fury. I wanted to stay furious. I wanted to stay upset. I wanted to stay in a place of action, social activism. I was like, what are we going to do? So I was like angry, angry, angry. And then the more that I wrote the poem, the more the poem actually ends on the words love. Will you, will you read the very end? Oh, okay. So, um, so this is the last image is actually speaking to um, specifically Eric Garner and the, a lot of the slogans that were on T-shirts uh, and just a lot of the things that were being talked about at the time. I'll just I'll just read the last little bits. It says, Are, but aren't we talking about mercy and its dark twin? Isn't that what's pummeling history on the side as I write this? Isn't it the thorn and the taser? Isn't it the chokehold and the gold arm of vengeance? I say it from my mouth and when it spills forth, it lands on the ground in a pool of light reflecting back at me. The one true blasphemy, love and 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 love is crowding the street and needs only air and it lives over there in the distance burning. The air that's registered at the, at the end of the poem spoke directly to, you know, Eric Garner's, you know, very last words that he couldn't, he just couldn't breathe because of his breathing, because of his breathing condition and that 
that, you know, the police officers weren't listening. We all know the story, but the police officers weren't actively listening to him that he couldn't breathe. And so this idea of air kind of like populates the end of the poem. By the way, I, I kind of cut off the loves. There's so many more loves. Like there's just like love because I felt like I felt like I needed to say it to say, you know, that love is at the very center, should be at the very center of what it is that we do with everything. Even in today's class, somebody had told me that one of my students said, you know, in order to not be angry about some of the things that were being written today in class of, of, of a white person writing in a black person's voice, like we have to come from a place of love. Somebody expressed that to me about one of my students. And, you know, I thought that was a very good, a very good lesson for me to sort of contemplate and think about. Um, so it's, it's interesting that the imagination wants to move, wants to move fully into fury, but I ended in love. That was, that was where my mind wanted to go. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. Okay. Uh, so I had, I never had an opportunity to have this person as a teacher. I wished he was my teacher. Um, and he passed away at the age of 101. If you know anything about the history of poets, you might be able to guess who it is. Uh, so Stanley Kunitz was the teacher of all of my teachers. So I, I like to think that I learned everything in some way from Stanley Kunitz units who educated everybody that came before me. He has just, it's almost like a bunch of advice uh, and it's called reflections. And it's something that I keep on my laptop that I go to pretty often because there's something within the wisdom of being 101 years old. And I do remember seeing him for the very last time. He had a celebration for his 100th birthday. And by the way, Stanley Kunitz is a not only a lover of poetry, he's a lover of gardens, he's a lover of peace. He's He started, he was the founder of Poets House in New York City, creator of communities, just a peaceful, peaceful soul. And so I I went to his work. I don't even know how I stumbled upon it. I think it was because of this reading that was celebrating his 100th birthday. And I should say that at the time, if you can imagine somebody who's 100, he was very frail. I stay in very close touch with many of my students and I had decided, okay, stu students, let's all go to his reading together. So there were about 20 of us and we went to his reading together and uh, we were, there were so many tributes. It was like 20 tributes and we couldn't wait for the moment that Stanley Kunitz could come out on stage. And so he came out on stage and he was so small and tiny. And then he sat down in this tremendous chair. You ever see those big chairs that are supposed to make you look tiny? They're just this tremendous chair that almost made him look like, like a child. And he sat down and he looked so tiny to me. And I wondered like how he was going to be able to read his poems because his daughter had come out with him. He was like leaning on her. And then the moment that he read his poems, he became large. He was larger than the room. He was larger than anybody who had spoken before him. So I was like, that man, I want to learn from him. So these are some of his reflections that I hope, I hope like in some words here and there that you can gain something from what he says. Years ago, I came to the realization that the most poignant of all lyric tension stems from the awareness that we are living and dying at once. To embrace such knowledge and yet to remain compassionate and whole, that is the consummation of the endeavor of art. At the core of one's existence is a pool of energy that has nothing to do with personal identity, but that falls away from self, blends into the natural universe. Man has only a bit part to play in the whole marvelous show of creation. Poems would be easy if our heads weren't so full of the day's clatter. The task is to get through to the other side where we can hear the deep rhythms that connect us with the stars and the tides. 
I keep trying to improve my control over language so that I won't have to tell lies, and I keep reading the masters because they infect me with human possibility. And then he talks about his age, which is a very short passage. At my age, after you're done, or ruefully think you're done, with the nagging anxieties and complications of your youth, what is there left for you to confront but the great simplicities? I never tire of birdsong and sky and weather. I want to write poems that are natural, luminous, deep, spare. I dream of an art so transparent that you can look through and see the world. So I felt like I, I, you know, I gained something from every single thing that I read, you know, especially the part about deep and spare. And I thought about my work. My work is anything but deep and spare. I don't know if there are any birds like in, the, in the, I don't know if there's any bird song. I don't, there might be stars. I don't know about the tides, but there's something in it that he was trying to say. And I think I really needed his messages because I was trying to confront also um, getting older. I was I'm right smack dab in the middle of my life. I am no longer considered youthful or young. And then also I felt like my poetry was kind of a accompanying me on that journey. And after reading his work, I was like, it's okay for me to have these older, mature thoughts, these thoughts about life, these thoughts about death, the thoughts of, of how we are trying to come to terms with ourselves as individuals in this nation that are trying to live peacefully with one another. It's okay for me to reflect and be older and embrace everything about being older as beautiful instead of something that's decaying or something that's collapsing. It's something that's growing. It's something that's blooming. It's something that's larger. And I felt like everything that he was telling me was it was supporting that thought all right thank you can you read something you wrote maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft and then share with us why you chose that okay I think I want to try to read from the poem that you had gestured toward before, which is a poem called Milk. This is speaking toward one of the stories that Mitzi was referencing before. Uh, there was a story um, in the news about a young boy named Libby Kletsky, and he was living in New York City, and he asked to walk home by himself. And it was kind of mirroring that situation where I was given a key. He was, it's almost like a direct mirror that he was given a key. And I thought it was like a direct mirror image that I made it home alive and safe and fine. And my mom could say, you know, I'm glad I gave her that key and she's fine. She, she made it and I made it into adulthood, which when you think about it is sort of a miracle. So um, Libby Kletsky asked his um, parents to walk home alone. He was eight years old. They said no. And um, he asked them so many times that they finally gave in and they said, okay, you know, we'll show you the way home and you can do it. So the day that they allowed him to walk home. Instead of turning left, he turned right and didn't make it home alive. He asked, he asked a stranger for directions and asked the wrong person. So, you know, so like when you think about it, it's like you take all the risks in the world, say yes, have your freedom, grow up to be a man. And then, you know, the person doesn't make it there. But so this I struggled with. Um, there's a quote by in a Maurice Sendak book called In the Night Kitchen. And it was one of my daughter's favorite books. And there's a quote in it go that goes, milk in the batter, milk in the batter, we bake cake and nothing's the matter. In every definition of home, my son conjures milk. The sun is milk, milk spills through open doorways, bed of warm milk, face of milk, milk trousers, a truck full of milk, a milky light passes through the lens of my camera. All of his young life, my son thought of milk and he asked for it each night. In every memory I have of him, his hands are outstretched and he's asking for his last bottle. In every version of a life, I never refuse him. 
On the television, the nation listens to the story of Libby Kletsky. Today, I think of his mother who waited for him, allowing him for the first time to walk home alone. That morning, he held a key, heavy and shining, made especially for him. In the ancient story of boys, he headed up the street past the lone dog, barking near the fire hydrant, past the circle of children careening into their own shadows. And in the ancient story of boys, he walked through his front door, and this was his rite of passage. He placed his book bag on the coffee table, and the boy and the mother sat together in the large reading chair in the living room light. But this version isn't true. Tonight, I hold my son closer. As I put on his night clothes, I'm afraid of the world. I find all the stories horrifying. In the book of nursery rhymes, the old woman sends her son to bed without food. A king beats a knave for stealing pies, and a dog cannot find his bone, though he runs in circles day after day. Perhaps if I rewrite all the old stories, a new era will begin. Era of the forgiven. Era of redemption. Era of safekeeping. Tonight, milk stains my blouse. Love so deep, it runs for me. After all the old stories are finished, my son says, the story again. I open the book. The owls lift from the pages. The lake is a bowl of night milk. And this a place so safe. We are weightless. Buoyant in its murky sweetness. Free from a promise that each new day startles us alive. So um, that was problematic for me <laughs> because, again, it wasn't my story, you know. So I actually did the same thing. I mean, you could see this process was is that I was kind of rejecting my own writing. And to reject your own writing is like to it's like it's like rejecting an organ. I couldn't I, I just couldn't I couldn't walk through the world like consistently rejecting these stories because it was doing something to me. So I didn't want to write a story about Livy Kletsky's death. That's not what I wanted to do. That would be like a, uh, that would be a sort of retelling of a story that's already being told. So then we have to ask ourselves like when we are telling a story in poetry, what are we seeking to do? And 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 in the case today in our class when we're trying to learn something from the discussion about race in our class, like I felt like I needed to learn something new from this. And so it was the journey about the love between this mother and the son but it really was just about the quiet spaces that we have, like the moment that we have to just embrace the moment, the present moment between mother and child and hoping that that, that moment lasts. You know, you're hoping that the moment that you sit with your child will be everlasting. It isn't. You know, that's the heartbreaking part is like for all these different reasons, it's like it's not everlasting. They grow up. You know, hopefully they stay alive. They leave your house. They, it's like they flew the nest. You get to see them less and less. This is the process of life. So I, I struggled with this because of it was Libby Kletsky's story and his family's story, not mine. But in thinking about this idea of fairy tales and the universal story, the story of love, I was like, okay, maybe there's a way that I could write this where I'm not speaking directly about his death per se, but something that happened in the, in the life between him and his mother. Where do you write? I write in my friend's home. Uh, we have been talking here about like the kind of sacred spaces that we make to make work. And our goal here has been if you don't have a sacred space at home, you need to make one. If you're writing in your bed, that's not a sacred space because that's where you sleep. If, you're, if your desk is all filled with clutter, you need to clear it out. If you're sharing it with somebody else and that person's like your husband or your wife and you have bills all over it, that's not good either. So I had that where I had given away everything. I'd given away everything to my children. I'd given my space. I'd given away my desk. I had nothing left. I asked, I had to be creative because I could feel my, my creative self calling. So I said to my friend, I said, I noticed 
notice that during the day you are not at your home. It was a big ask. I said, could I, could I use your home to write? I said, I'm really struggling right now and I need help. And I, and I would really, I'm working on a book, but I don't think I'll ever get there if I don't have a desk. I was like, I need one. And so she was such a kind friend, a loving friend. And we had known each other for so long since our youth. She said, yes. And I've been working out of her home for six years. I dropped my children off at school. I cross the street and there's her home. I open up the door. I don't have to clean. I don't have to do anything. I don't have anywhere to putz around. I don't have any letters to open or anything to do. And I just write. I write for five to six hours and then my children get out of school. I lock the door. I leave my creativity there and I go pick up my kids. So that's my writing routine. But what do you do when you're not writing with your time? I think we're always writing. I think writing is something that we can't escape even if we are not physically writing. Um, I think that was sort of what I was speaking to is that even if I wasn't physically picking up the pen to write or even if I wasn't um, typing on my computer, I think that if you feel called to an art form, whether that be some composition or film or writing, I think you're always creating the work. I think it's needling at you until you do the work. I think that's why we have this sort of achy feeling when we're not, when we're, for us, I'm, I'm guessing that everybody here is a writer, we're not writing, it, it feels painful. It feels painful not to write because, the, because something within us is telling us, do this thing, do this thing that you're meant to do. So I don't know if I ever really fully escape it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show the poet Tracy K. Smith, who just um, finished her two terms at, as the Poet Laureate of the United States. We started off as young writers together in a poetry workshop. You know, I, I really believe that when you find your friends, it's also love at first sight. They utilize this idea like love at first sight for like a love or a lover or a husband or a wife. Um, it was love at first sight with, with Tracy and I where I saw her. I recognized her spirit. She recognized mine. And I thought, I'm never going to let this person go. And uh, since those early days of being in a classroom environment together, traveling through these 25 years together of being poets and seeing all the ups and downs of being writers together, she's still my very first reader, oh. even now. How have you dealt with rejection? Okay, so I just want to say that I deal with rejection in a very clean way. I basically look at it, I note what has happened, and I throw it out. So I, I, I'm not of the mind that we should hold on to our rejection, save it, put it in a notebook. There's some people who say, oh, I could wallpaper you know, my room with rejections. Why? Why would you want to remind yourself of all of that? I don't, I, I don't know if I ever really saw rejections as failures, because today we also talked about this idea of like failure and what it is. I just saw it as like, so it wasn't somebody's cup of tea. Like for that particular day, they could have gotten off, off you know, like gotten out of bed on the wrong side of the bed. They could have just not been in a good mood or they could have just plain not liked my poem for their own reasons. So I think from a very young age, I was very pragmatic about it. I would like develop folders, send out my work. And the minute that I got them back, I would look at it, I would shrug, it was, okay. And then just throw it in the garbage. I would note like what the person said. And it's very, very important though that not all rejections are created equal. It's very, very important to know that because a rejection where it's a form rejection, where they just write, where it's the same one generated to many people, those are the ones that I really didn't like care for. And I just threw them out and I noted like which poems are rejected. Then there's the nice rejection, the really lovely rejection, the hopeful rejection, which is that a writer, that an editor actually took the time and said, you know what? not these particular poems or not this particular piece, but please send me more in the future. That is a glorious rejection because that means that they were truly, truly interested 
in your work and you really should send again. They really, really mean it because they wouldn't even bother picking up their pen to write that if they didn't mean it. So oftentimes I would remember that and I would take the rejection to heart and I would, I would note it and then I would resend to that editor again and almost always it would be published. But I also have to say that there is some value and being rejected. Every writer that I know, all the writers that are here, Nick Flynn, we have all discussed, like all we see is every writer's successes. You know, when we when we kind of go onto Instagram or Facebook, we see all the marvelous things that people have done. We don't see them saying, I got rejected today, or I, I got rejected 10 times in the past month. We only see all the wonderful things that they do. So everybody who is successful or published or a, person, or a writer of note, they themselves have gone through so much rejection, but they were just able to build themselves back up pretty quickly. And what is your favorite word? Okay, so uh, my favorite word is... Roman, which is my son's name. If we think about how long and hard we think about this idea of naming someone, you know, I thought about it for a really long time. And at first his, his name was going to be Mateo. And then my husband was all on board. He's like, Mateo's a good name. It's a good name. And then he came up to me like a little, a few days before I was about to around the time I was going to give birth. He said, you know, we can't name this boy Mateo because, um, I really had a falling out with someone named Mateo. So it's It's really giving me some bad vibes and bad energy. So then I was like, oh, you can't announce this like a few days before the birth. It's cruel. So then I was watching a movie and I thought the best way to look for a child's name was to watch the the movie credits so i saw the name roman not roman polanski (laughs) (laughs) not roman polanski it was like somebody like a grip or somebody who's like working on the lighting or something and i said roman that is a strong name i got the advice from a professor of mine he's like if you're going to give birth to a child give them a rock star sexy name. It'll just make their life easier. And so I thought, this is a good name. Roman, and I even mentioned in the book, like I say the word Roman, Roman, Roman over again to say Roman. You know, this sounds like a masterful name, like Roman, this word will keep him safe. Roman, there's a circle of fire around him. Nothing could touch him. Nothing could touch this boy because he's named Roman, emperor, king of kings, you know? So I thought if I gave him that name, like every time I say it, it's like calling out to him, scolding him, Roman. You know, that I love saying the word, you know, because it's calling him to me. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. It's been such an honor. So (laughs) for some, when we were testing out the microphones, I asked Tina if she ever had done karaoke. Stupid question, I guess. Because you owned a karaoke machine. So, so Tracy K. Smith and I, when we were in our youth, um, we had decided just uh, out of the blue that we really liked to sing and we liked karaoke. So we together uh, pitched in because we didn't have enough funding back then. So we pitched in for a karaoke machine. So we invite all the neighborhood poets and writers to our home for karaoke and drinks and all until all hours of the night would sing. But then we realized that we had a karaoke problem when everybody left and when nobody wanted to come over anymore. And we were just singing to each other. So we had to have mercy on each other. And we actually gave, we actually gave, donated the karaoke machine to a, a local, a local bar around the corner <laughs> because we couldn't make each other suffer anymore. So do, do you, are you going to so, ask the audience if they yes. know the song? So her favorite <laughs> song uh-huh. to karaoke is Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Does anybody know the song? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start with just the okay. beginning and then we'll fade out on the podcast. So um, <laughs> I can't sing it already. Okay. Okay. Right. Can you, can you help me if you know this? Who knows the song? Raise your hand. <laughs> Come on. 
you know you know. Okay, okay. there's one guy. There's one guy in the background who knows the song, and everybody else is being shy about it. All right. I'll sing it with me. I have the worst voice. You'll see. Okay, ready? ready? Are you gonna play it? I just have the words. Okay. I ready? think I know the. I think I know the words okay. without looking. And then if I mess up, we'll just mess up together, right? Okay. And ready? then you're gonna help us. Whoever knows yes. the song, especially the guy in the back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna sing it together. Okay. Yep. Okay. Ready? Go. Go. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide. No, no escape, escape from reality. Open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. I'm just a poor boy, I need no sympathy because I'm easy come, easy go, little high, little low. Any way the wind blows doesn't really matter to me. <laughs> You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing recorded live at Aspen Summer Words, a program of the Aspen Words nonprofit. You can find out more about Summer Words and other Aspen Words programs at aspenwords.org. My guest today was Tina Chang, poet laureate of Brooklyn and author of Hybrida. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft Radio Show and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. Please take a moment to support First Draft and contribute to keeping the program alive at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. There are plenty of extras for becoming a member, and your donations help to keep the dialogue going. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Mitzi Rapkin.